We're in Romans 8, as Gino indicated. Romans 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 tonight. Romans 8, one of the pivotal chapters in the Bible, really uh, telling us how to live out the Christian life. It does it with the L words, life, leading, and love. Those three powerful L words provide a map of where we're headed as we navigate through Romans chapter 8. Life is the predominant word in verses 1 through 13. Life or live occur seven times in those 13 verses. Your spirit is alive to God, but more importantly, God the Holy Spirit lives within you uh, to guide and direct your life. Leading is only directly mentioned once in verse 14, where you are told, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. But the Holy Spirit's leading is the theme all the way down through verse 30. Through God's providence and through God's predestination, the Holy Spirit is leading you along the path prepared for your life. You can expect the leading of God by His indwelling Spirit. And then love is going to be the focus of the famous concluding verses. You read things like, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The chapter ends with the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so we learn that we can experience the love of God by His indwelling Spirit. Life, leading, and love are a good way of understanding what it means to be a Christian. You have eternal life in Jesus Christ and you can live it abundantly even now thanks to the empowering of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Since it is God who has given you such life, you can count on His leading at all times. God's doing something with you. He doesn't just save you and go on to the next person. Uh, we'll talk tonight a little bit about what He's doing. And even when His leading is obscured by uh, sufferings and tragedies in this life, you can still be certain of His unfailing, constant love for you. Now, as you are probably aware... The Bible, as it was originally written, had no chapter breaks. The translators added them later for convenience. So the verse numbers, the chapter breaks, those are not part of the inspired text. Those are uh, decisions that translators make to uh, kind of catch the flow. Uh, that means that chapter 8 really is a continuation of Paul's discussion from the previous verses. The last image we had in chapter 7 was of what was called the body of death. We established from historical sources that the literal body of death was a form of torture attributed to Etruscan pirates by which they tied a dead, rotting corpse to a living victim and then watched them both deteriorate, probably while drinking rum on an island, I guess, because that's what pirates do. Um, the Apostle Paul, familiar with this form of torture, applied it to the Christian life. He showed how the new creation I am in Christ is still tied, as it were, to a body of death. Now, the body of death we've been talking about is not my physical body itself. It is a principle I find at work within my body which influences me to sin by yielding the members of my body to fulfill its lust. We call this influence 
uh, this principle, the flesh. Until we are free from our physical bodies and with the Lord, we'll struggle with this principle within our bodies, the flesh. The question then becomes, are we to spend our lives frustrated by defeats in this struggle against the flesh? That's sort of where Paul led up to at the end of verse or chapter 7, but then he thanked God through Jesus Christ who delivers us from the body of death. And chapter 8 now is going to describe that deliverance. It delineates how we win that struggle. It announces that there is a power by which we may always achieve victory over the flesh. And so in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As a standalone verse, this is often quoted to establish that because you are in Christ and have therefore been justified and declared righteous, you possess an eternal life that cannot be forfeited. While I believe that to be true, this verse is better understood in the context of what Paul has been discussing, which is not salvation, but after salvation, sanctification. Just as a rule... Uh, something can be biblically true but not taught from a particular verse that you're trying to teach it from and that's why it's important to understand context. And so while I would agree there is no more condemnation for you once you become a Christian, you've passed from death to life, you've been born again, uh, you're secure in that, Uh, this verse is not really teaching that. It's really uh, a verse about what Paul has been saying uh, on our sanctification, our daily life, Since you've been saved uh, and you struggle with the flesh, are you doomed to be condemned to this kind of terrible existence where every day you wake up and say, whoa, wretched man that I am. I want to do good, I do bad. I don't do bad, I do this. And, and, And you just have this horrible experience. And Paul says, yeah, no, that's not where I'm going to leave you. There's not, you're, you're not under that kind of condemnation, even though the flesh is still with you. If you were captured by pirates and tied securely to a body of death, you were pretty well condemned, and it was just a matter of time before you succumbed. Uh, I mean, that's kind of just, that was the end. And uh, I don't think too many people escaped that. Uh, And so, I mean, that was it. You know, there's some TV shows, some movies, some situations where it's like, okay, that's it. He's dead. And, and it's it's just and so that you were just condemned when that happened. But as a Christian, Paul breaks out of the analogy. He says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You walk around with the flesh, but you don't need to be in the flesh, as it were, because you are in Christ Jesus. Some of the better manuscripts from which the Bible is translated don't include the next phrase who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's just not there. That's fine. We can leave it out because it is in the best manuscripts when we get to verse 4. Now, if I must carry around the body of death until I'm out of my physical body, how is it I am not condemned? How is it that I can go about without it affecting me and pulling me down? That's what we're talking about. And this is a pretty exciting topic. Because this is where we live every day. Uh, You know, failing and falling and asking the Lord to help us. 
Uh, and Paul's going to tell us there's indeed victory because he says in verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. A believer is in Christ Jesus, and that means he or she has received the Spirit of life. For sure, your human spirit, which was dead at birth, has come alive to God. You're born spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, And when you're born again, your human spirit comes alive within you. But this is really referring to the fact that God, the Holy Spirit, is living within you. He is indwelling you. Since you are in Christ Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, now is in you. Uh, And this is obviously a... The understatement of the decade would be that this is a tremendous benefit. This is a great blessing. Uh, In fact, this is the key to the Christian life. Paul contrasted the Holy Spirit living within you and sin and death which cling to you in the form of the flesh. He referred to them both as laws. William MacDonald picks up on this and offers the following illustration to highlight what Paul meant. Uh, MacDonald writes this. He says... The characteristic principle of the Holy Spirit is to empower believers for holy living. The characteristic principle of indwelling sin is to drag a person down to death. It's like the law of gravity. When you throw a ball into the air, it comes back down because it is heavier than the air it displaces. A living bird is also heavier than the air it displaces, but when you toss it up in the air, it flies away. The law of life in the bird overcomes the law of gravity. So the Holy Spirit supplies the risen life of the Lord Jesus, making the believer free from the law of sin and death. And so there's the law of sin and death. It's at work in our flesh. We saw it all last week and the prior weeks in chapter 7. And then Paul says, but there's also the law of the spirit of life. You have the spirit of life within you now. And you're not a ball that's thrown into the air and that every time falls. You're a bird flown into the air that flies away. In chapter 7, there were a ton of personal pronouns as Paul discussed his struggle against the flesh. Chapter 8 abandons personal pronouns for the most part and focuses on the person of the Holy Spirit within us. Verse 3, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God's law was weak through the flesh means that though it told me what to do, I had no power to do what it said. For example, the law stated, thou shalt not covet. As soon as I read that, I realize what? I do covet, I have coveted, and I will covet in the future. There's something about me, therefore, that is weak, that is powerless to do what the law tells me to do. And so, the, you know, the, we could pick anything from God's law, but the covetous is a good thing because we can all relate to that. All of us have wanted to, you know, so, some object, some person that is not our own. Uh, we've wanted something that belonged to someone else, and we will continue to be that way. And and so when I read that, I I realize that there's something at work in me 
that is evil, but I see that I'm weak. I, I, there's nothing I can do. So the law is good. It's great. It would be wonderful if we could live in a kind of a society there was no coveting. And it's interesting, you know, it's, it, those of you who study history and, and different things, the different forms of government and, and uh, you know, how philosophers come along and reject God and say, well, if we just do this, if we're just communists, you know, well, just everybody will live at the same level, we'll all be happy then. Yeah, no one's happy then. And government comes and government goes and, you know, we have, a, I believe, the, you know, great form of government. But, you know, law after law after law has to be passed. Why? Because as soon as you pass a law, somebody figures out how to get around it or underneath it or above it. And, and then another law. Because there's something about us that is evil. But in a spiritual sense, if I'm sharp, I think, you know, there, I just, the law tells me what to do, but I, I just, I can't do it. I can't just try to not covet. Uh, it's just something within me. I'm weak. I've often quoted this little poem which begins, Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. I like that. God's law was given to men who possess a fallen, sinful human nature, and thus they are without the ability to fulfill it. They may keep some of its rules and rites and rituals. They may observe diets and days, but even in these, mankind falls short to say nothing of the problem we find in our hearts if we're honest with ourselves. Here's the whole poem. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better way the Spirit brings, He bids me fly and gives me wings. As believers in Christ, we find that God's commands carry an enabling with them. Now that I'm born again, now that I have the Spirit living within me, God can tell me to do something and I find a power to do it. I find an enabling within me to accomplish it. Also in the verse we see that Jesus was sent from heaven to the earth. He took a body that was in the likeness of sinful flesh. It was a real human body, but without a sin nature like you and I are born with. And that, of course, was accomplished by the miracle of the virgin birth. It says he came on account of sin. That is, he came because you and I were condemned sinners. And account of our sin, he had to come and take our place to save us. Instead of you being condemned by your sin, Jesus stood in that place of condemnation, though he didn't deserve it. Not only that, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. This means not only did Jesus die for the sins we commit, but He died for our sin nature. He died to resolve who we are, not just what we have done. He died to put our, to death our sin nature and to give us a new nature, and now we find ourselves just struggling against the flesh, this leftover influence and principle. Now, something that is condemned can still exist and be very dangerous. A condemned bridge can fall at any time. Our flesh is condemned, but it's still very dangerous. Think of a death row prisoner. He may be condemned and awaiting death, but that doesn't mean he won't cause trouble for the COs. He's biding his time violently until his execution. And in fact, uh, I would imagine that people that, are, that have no hope and no chance and are at the end of things make as much trouble as they can. Why not? And so ju condemnation doesn't end anything. It sometimes makes it even more powerful or at least more dangerous. 
Now, whether we call it a law or an influence or a principle, the flesh resides in our current physical body, and it always will until we go to be with the Lord. But so does God the Holy Spirit reside within us. And he makes verse 4 possible. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. As a Pharisee, Paul could say he had kept the letter of the law. And the Pharisees, as I pointed out before, we look back on the Pharisees, the first century Pharisees, and we have the perspective that Jesus had because of the words of Jesus. Jesus uh, busted them out as uh, hypocrites. They were whitewashed tombs, he said. On the outside, you look great, but inside, if you got inside of that whitewashed tomb, there's just a bunch of dead man's bones. And he meant to indicate that they couldn't keep God's law from the heart. But having said what he said, on the outside, they're whitewashed. Outwardly, they were keeping God's law. They, they kept it you know, minutely, observing diets and days. I've, the, my favorite example I've used many times over the years is that they would tithe of, of spices. Uh, you know, they'd go down and get their basil, their lemon basil, and, and then they'd break it up and then they would count the leaves and they'd give God 10% of the leaves of their basil. I mean, these guys were into outward observance. And so if you just looked at them... From the outward, you think, man, these guys are righteous. But Paul says, no, the righteous requirement of the law uh, cannot be fulfilled by walking according to the flesh, only in the spirit. Uh, they had never fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law because it was a life of absolute holiness that was required. And not just with regard to what was outward, the law of God required an inner righteousness that we would call perfection if it's God's law it's a perfect law and that it would require that we keep it perfectly and even if a person could start at a point in time and keep God's law perfectly outwardly he couldn't do it inwardly and even if you could inwardly you've already blown it uh, prior to that time and so the law can only condemn it's impossible to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law without God's help. And this is why it's so silly for people to try and live by outward laws. Or to even Christian groups who kind of camp out on one issue. The Sabbath. Our big issue is the Sabbath. We're the church that is keeping the Sabbath. It's as if they had some kind of a, a meeting, you know, without Jesus present. And they said, what do you think Jesus would say is the really important thing that we do? And they I don't know, how about we keep the Sabbath? That sounds good. A lot of other people aren't keeping the Sabbath. That'll be our thing, Sabbath keeping. Other groups come along and say, that's lame. What you really need to do is be water baptized to be saved. And, and that's where they camp out. And all they ever do is talk. And those kinds of groups, that's all they do is they talk about those issues. So you go to their Bible study, every Bible study somehow comes around to the Sabbath. It somehow comes around to being water baptized. And essentially what they're saying is you can keep the righteous requirements of the law by doing something outwardly. And Paul is saying, yeah, that don't work. I tried that as a uh, Pharisee. As a Christian, I found that that can't work. But here's something better. Give your life to the Holy Spirit. Live by the Spirit. 
We have God's help. In fact, we have God's helper, which is the job description Jesus gave to the Holy Spirit when he told us he was leaving, but that he would send us the Spirit. He said the Spirit will be another helper. Another like me is coming to help you. And it's a good thing that I go away, Jesus said, because now, you know, I, I'm in a physical body, guys. Uh, you know, the incarnation, it's a permanent thing. I took a body of, in the likeness of human flesh. I'm raised in a glorified human body, and I'm going to be in this body for eternity with you. I've permanently identified with you as the God-man. But here's something. I'm going to send God the Holy Spirit, and He can indwell every one of you. It's as if... I am with every one of you by the Spirit. And he called the Spirit our helper. Uh, and so that's what he's, he's come alongside of us to help us, to help us live the Christian life, to understand the Christian life, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law that could not be fulfilled by our own effort. Now, language scholars point out that verse 4 is in a tense they call the passive voice. Whenever I read that, I think of somebody... With a really weak voice. But I think it means something else. What it means is that the Holy Spirit produces a life of obedience, which the law commanded but could not produce, and that it's the Spirit who furnishes that power, not us. The decision, whether we want to cooperate with Him, that's ours, but it's the Spirit that is working through us. And so we're definitely talking the biblical doctrine of sanctification. After salvation... God has promised to conform you into the image of Jesus Christ and to complete the work He has begun in you. And that's it's really important. I mean, you don't have to get super intellectual or scholarly to see basic things here in the book of Romans. And that's good because I'm not super intellectual or scholarly. But, you know, for several chapters, Paul was hitting us with what? Salvation. Bam, bam. Justification by faith. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God declares you righteous. Salvation, salvation, salvation. And then he says, okay, are you getting that? Did you get that part of it? How you get saved? You believe God? You know, it's not by works. Now I want to talk about what happens after salvation. Between the time that you're saved and the time you go to be with the Lord, there's this long period of time for most of us, relatively long. And that is a time when God is working on us the Bible calls it sanctification. We're being separated. We're being changed moment by moment and day by day from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. The master potter is molding and shaping us uh, and, and, and making us into the vessels of honor that he wants us to be. Uh, this is a work that you and I cooperate with or we can hinder. I mean, it's, that's just the way it is. You, you can yield yourself or you can... Uh, withhold. Uh, you know, so, some people make fun of these, you know, uh, but God in the, in the uh, scriptures you know, talks about the potter working with clay and some people say, oh yeah, as if the clay can do anything. Well, human clay can. Human clay can be hardened. It can harden itself against God and, and uh, Jeremiah talked about that when he talked about the nation of Israel. They hardened, they, they were like God's clay on the potter's wheel, but they hardened themselves and so God disciplined them. Uh, and so this is the area in which we cooperate. So don't confuse salvation with sanctification. And in this area of sanctification, what Paul is going to establish is you've got the Holy Spirit living within you, God's helper. And with that power, you can do all the things that God wants you to do. You can be the person God wants you to be. You can walk in the victory that God has for you. 
Now, John comes along later on in his epistle. He says, look, still have the flesh. Well, Paul's saying it too. Still have the flesh. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar. We're still going to struggle with the flesh. But moment by moment, I can know that I, I can win this struggle because it's not I, but the Lord living through me. I really do have the Holy Spirit to help me if I will just yield to Him in every situation. And, and if I were to analyze all the failures of my life, well, I wouldn't have time to do that. Even today, if I were to analyze all the failures of my life today, all of them would boil down to I was not allowing myself to be led by the Spirit of God and to react the way that the Spirit of God was prompting me to react. And I was not, you know, I, my, I wasn't really listening to my helper for whatever reason. You know, there's the, the world, the flesh, the devil, all of that. Uh, you know, whatever excuse, oh, that's the way I am, or I did this, or uh, you know, I'm stressed out today, or whatever it might be. Still, it all boils down to I had the help, and I just cho- I said, no, Lord, I've got this one. Sit this one out. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing this over here. I did my devotions today, so I'm all, I'm all strengthened up. I'm all prayed up. I'm ready to go. I don't, I don't really need to le- listen to your leading. I'm going to handle this my own way. Uh, and, you know, sometimes what you'll find as we study uh, Romans 8, maybe, is that we're not only talking about sin. I mean, it's, it's obvious when we're sinning that we're not yielding to the Spirit. We're not getting victory over sin. But I think it's possible for Christians to live most of their life without any real yielding to the Holy Spirit. You just kind of live a generally moral life. People in the world, they're not all Charles Manson, right? I mean, we tend to think that way after we become Christians, that everybody's so... But, you know, have you ever had somebody tell you that people in the world are better than you? They act better than you. They have better morality than you. You know, they're, they're more Christian than you, even though they're not Christian. You know, it's a criticism, I know, and it's not always true. But people in the world, they're not all crazy. Not everybody in the world even gets divorced. Right? I mean, you, I mean Christians get divorced. People in the world get divorced. Christians stay married. People in the world stay married. My mom and dad, what, what was it? Their 70th wedding anniversary went down and celebrated? I, it was crazy. It's insane. They, they haven't been Christians for 70 years. If you said, what's the secret of your success? They wouldn't say Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's interesting. I'm not saying this to frighten us. It's in my own life too. I, I might live my whole life without really any help, uh, any noticeable help from the Holy Spirit because I'm a generally nice, moral person. And I, oh yeah, I, should, I could have done better and I, I maybe could have been you know, more active you know, and serving God and all that. But, you know, I'm an all right person. I went to some Bible studies and I went to church and I did all the things that a Christian is supposed to do. But I, I never really broke into a dimension of, okay, Lord, what am, what am I really supposed to be doing? Who am I really? What do you have for me? It's, it's a really interesting proposition that's maybe only possible in the Western world. I mean, you know, other places where you're being... And I don't want... Don't get me wrong. I do not want to be persecuted. I never pray for persecution. And if you start praying for persecution and I find out, 
we're going to have words. If God wants, you know. But, you know, in the rest of the world, I mean, there are people who, I mean, they literally, they have to depend on the Holy Spirit a lot more than we do. I think because of our benefits and blessings and all that, we don't really have to depend on the Holy Spirit. Not all the way, anyway. And so sometimes we just kind of settle into a marginal uh, sort of a walk. And I'm not, re- you know, I'm, I'm talking to myself. I'm not rebuking our body. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, we could, you know. It, this isn't really even about you personally. It's just in general. This is just the reality of the whole thing. And so this is very important stuff. The understanding that right now, the Spirit of the living God that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, the third person of the triune God, a person, a living, you know, a, a person, indwells me has a relationship with me, speaks to me, brings me God's Word. And, and that's one of, the, one of the sad things is that so many people, and I want you to hear me on this, I don't want you to misunderstand me, but so many people are so into God's Word, they ignore the Spirit as if they are two separate things. And what I mean by that is they think, hey, I read the Word, I understand what it says, I don't need any more of the Spirit of God. My understanding, my studying, my reading commentaries, whatever it is, my listening to the pastor, that's the Holy Spirit telling me the Word. And so, you know, this Holy Spirit thing, any talk about being filled with the Spirit. You'd be surprised, maybe not, if you read Bible commentaries. Most of them are written by really conservative guys. And as soon as the word filling with the Spirit comes up, man, they get defensive. It's like, you don't really need to be. You were filled with the Spirit already. You can't even be a Christian if you're not filled with the Spirit. So shut up. Any talk about being filled with the Spirit, the next thing you know, you'll be speaking in tongues. Demons will be flying around your head. Forget all of that. Uh, what about the baptism? You were baptized into the body of Christ. There is no baptism with the Holy Spirit. What is the matter with you? Let's take the second offering now. You know, I mean, it's just... These conservative guys, now I don't claim to know everything about the Holy Spirit. I, I'm not an expert. I mean, he's a... Per, but, but really, this is American Christianity. This is conservative American Christianity. It's like, you could go on... It, I heard Alan Redpath. The first time I ever heard this, it was from Alan Redpath. I don't know who first said this. But Redpath said, if you remove the Holy Spirit from the church, if he just decided to take a vacation and left the church... 95% of most church activities would go on just as they were. No one would even notice, Redpath said, that the Holy Spirit wasn't around because it is all being done in human energy. And that's, that's, not, that's a scary proposition. And so at least it behooves us to pray and say, Lord, are we doing this in our own energy and strength? Am I trusting in my own wit and wisdom and ability? Are we really being led by you? Now... This doesn't mean that you just, this is the problem that churches get into. Then they just say, okay, let it flow. We don't even study the Word anymore. We just have the Spirit flow and it's like we've opened the spout where the glory comes out and we're just, it's here, brother. So what's been going on? Oh, you know, Pastor Gino fell over frothing in the middle of the message. You know, we couldn't even get through the first song because the whole worship team started shouting in tongues and then a guy jumped out the window and, and it was glorious. So what did you do during the... What, did you learn anything about what to do during the week at work to help you... Event? No. Did you jump out the window at work? 
What do you mean? Did you lay down frothing on the ground? Is that the way you reach your friends and neighbors? During? No, that's stupid. That only happens in church when we go crazy, you know. And so it's really hard to strike this balance because you offend people all over the place. You offend conservatives. You offend Pentecostals. I can't tell you how many Pentecostal people have come to our church and they're so disappointed. They're just so disappointed when they come to our church. I've had, I remember one guy came up and he goes, it was, and actually it was a sweet old lady. She came up and she goes, brother, you almost had the Holy Ghost tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just, oh, you know. And so it's scary. So, you know, those of us who love the Word, we love to study the Word and all that, you, you, it gets scary to think about what might the Holy Spirit do? Well, what happens if I really live the Spirit? And you know what? You do some crazy things if you're led by the Spirit. You give, I remember when we first got saved, and I always go back to when we first got saved because that's when you're kind of really in the vein, usually. When we first got saved, I remember we're sitting in a church like this, and they had a need, and it was for all the money we had. It wasn't a huge sum of money, it was only a thousand bucks, but in those days a thousand bucks was worth ten million dollars, but no, I'm just kidding. And Pam looked at me with that look that I knew what it was like, we have to give the church our money. All right. And, 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 you know, and then you move and then you, this happens and you lose $10,000 over here. All right, it was your money anyway, Lord. And then you, you go to weird places that God wants you to go to. You, you live a life that's a little bit Abrahamic. Right where you're at. I mean, you're not going, to, you know, you don't have to really go anywhere. You're just there doing it. And, and so, to me, I know I'm cutting into our Holy Spirit time now, but to me... If in my life, and there's been long periods of time in my life, and there probably will be again, but if in my life and in your life there aren't episodes in which you're doing edgy things, where you're giving, not money you don't have, but money you're holding on to, and God says, hey, I want that. I can use that right now. Or you're going somewhere where you don't really feel comfortable going. Or something. Something's happening where God is directing you and you're like, yeah, really? You want me to talk to that guy? You want me to go over here? You want me to do that? That's illogical. I, I don't see how that doesn't fit into my five-year plan or whatever it would be. There needs to be things like that in your life. Not, you can't manufacture them. You don't just do them to be stupid. We had a lady one time, not in our church, but in one of the churches here in town. She had a faith uh, checking account. Local pastor here, she wrote him a check for like a hundred bucks and they really needed the money, you know, because they didn't have any groceries and all of that. Her check bounced, their check bounced, and so they confronted her, well, they asked her about it and she goes, that's from my faith account. And what do you mean? God tells me to write checks sometimes and I just trust that the money's going to be there if he told me to do it. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. God's not check kiting. You know, he's not, he's, he's not fraud, he's not a fraudulent person, you know. Uh, but at the same time, you, I think you understand what I'm saying. At the same time, you can sit there and think, man, I've got my finances are totally under control. And then God says, yeah, let's ruin all that. Here, here's what I want you to do with this, you know. And wait a minute, that, that's not part of my plan. Yeah, it's part of my plan. So anyway, I think you understand what I'm talking about. So that's the journey that, that, that we're on in Romans 8. You want to live the Spirit-filled life? You don't have to. You don't have... God says, all right. You can live a marginal Christian life. You can go to church, go home. You know, uh, you can even be blessed. 
Or you can open up to the possibility that there's some other things that I might want you to do, some other people I might want you to talk to, and, and kind of you know, relive the book of Acts in that sense. You look at those guys in the book of Acts, they didn't really do anything crazy, but they followed the leading of the Lord and they, and they ended up doing pretty remarkable stuff. They didn't even know what they were doing. Peter's my favorite. You know, everybody talks about Peter after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, how he was a different person. Well, he was, but he still didn't know what to do. He's given a, a message, and he doesn't even know how to do an altar call. Finally, they get tired of listening to him. They say, hey, can we get saved? Oh, yeah, okay, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thousands of people get saved. Wow, it's the first harvest crusade, you know. He didn't, he didn't know how to go for the kill. Later on, they call him, you know, Dorcas died, and they say, hey, what am I doing here? Uh, she's dead. You know, raise her from the dead. What? Okay, I guess I'll pray for her. We'll see what happens. He get, he's in prison. He, angels kicking him, saying, hey, get up. We've got to get out of here. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't come to his senses until later. And so, you know, it's an adventure. Uh, but we need to sign on for it. Amen?